All right, so in the previous weeks, we've done a lot of the questions and discussions has been very much like application in our personal lives, etc. Tonight is a little bit more theological because this passage that we looked at deals with really Jesus and the law, or as we saw on Sunday, kingdom righteousness. And we, I just found, found that the passage that we went through on Sunday was just really powerful. And it's good to think about some of these things a little bit more deeply and to compare a little bit more scripture because it's pretty foundational to understanding Christianity. It's, it's really the difference, the main difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion, including some forms of Christianity, is how a person becomes righteous, right? The question of how does a person become righteous is the ultimate religious question that people have asked forever, right? Because most religions teach, even, even not just Christianity, but like Islam uh, and, and Eastern religions as well, they teach that there is a standard of right and wrong, in that we have to live by the standard. We have to be righteous, righteous to go to heaven. And so the Christian understanding, the biblical Christian understanding of righteousness is really, really important because it's different from every other perspective, how a person becomes righteous. And so we look in chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 17. And remember, we're dealing with the Pharisees, who they are all about righteousness, Right? The Pharisees are professional righteousness dealers. Right? That's, their, that's, what they, that's their whole life, is about being righteous, being obedient to the law. So let's look first of all at Jesus and the law. Jesus and the law. You know, in John's gospel, it says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And I want you to work through it with me and think about it. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now let's pause before we read verse number 20. And let me ask the question, based on these three verses, how would you describe Jesus' relationship to the law? Just based on this introductory statement that he makes, how would you describe Jesus' relationship to the law? What, what are some things that we learn in here? Yes. Okay, so absolutely. So Jesus holds the law in high regard. What else do you notice about Jesus' perspective on this? Go ahead, look at it again. Look at verses 17 through 19. And what would you say is Jesus' perspective and his relationship to the law in these first three verses. So, like Mike said, he holds it in a high regard. Anything else you would notice here? Yeah. 
Frank? Uh, he referred to the, uh, the laws as commandments. No, you are absolutely correct. When he refers to the law, but also in that case, he's he's clarifying about the law and that you shouldn't break any of them. Yeah, in fact, so much so that he says, "How much of the law is important in this in this passage? How much of it?" Yeah, what were you going to say, Linda? Um. I don't know, I feel like it says to me that um, he's here to fulfill the law, that he is the law. Yeah. That his, he's the standard of the law. You're absolutely right. That's where it's headed. So, so let's build on that. So Mike says, Mike points out to us here correctly that not only does he have a high regard for the law, but he has a high regard for even the smallest parts of the law, right? Even the lowest parts of the law Jesus has a high regard for them, okay? Now, that's the jot and the tittle. Those would be, the, the jot would be the, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the, and the tittle would be the mark of punctuation. So he's saying that he's not doing away with a jot or a tittle, right? Until when? Till heaven and earth pass, one jot... Or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be what? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. Interesting, because will the Old Testament law be done away with? Is there a point at which the law is going to be done away with, the Old Testament law? Yes, not a trick question, yes or no? Absolutely. Is that time now when Jesus is speaking? Why not? Because he hasn't died on the cross. It is his death that ushers in the New Testament. It's death and resurrection. That, so everything you read up until the death of Christ is Old Testament. I mean, we read it in the New Testament, but the, the New Testament, the doing of the way of the law, does not happen until the death of Christ. So Jesus is right now speaking to people, and for these next three years, they are to be focused on the law. That's who they are. And Jesus says, heaven and earth won't pass away before even the smallest commandment is done away with, or is fulfilled, I should say. Before the law can be set aside, it has to be what? Fulfilled. And now, like Linda said, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the perfect fulfillment. He's the one that will complete it even to its, the, the very most minute detail. Yeah, now it's veiled here because he doesn't say that he will fulfill it. He speaks now because this is early. So he doesn't say, I am the fulfillment of the law. He'll start to say those kinds of things, those I am statements later. But here he's giving a clue. He's saying the law will be fulfilled. Now, if you're in a Jewish mind, how could the law ever be fulfilled? Like, how could you fulfill the law, all of it? Jesus says it's going to be all fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, I have to, so you're right, so I misspoke there. You're correct, actually. He, he is. I mean, it's still hidden, but you're right. He says, I have come to fulfill, and the law won't be done away till all is fulfilled. So he speaks somewhat cryptically, but he is saying that there's a fulfillment of the law coming, and I am the fulfillment of the law. You're right. 
the, the idea that he was the Messiah, he built it up and built it up and he, he removed the, the mystery of it. Or he layered it. Right. Yeah. He that's didn't just drop it down in one shot. That's exactly right. You have this, the, the layered unveiling of his deity and his messiahship. And here, it specifically deals with the law. In other areas, Jesus revealed it through miracles and through power over the demons and through those kind of things. But here, he's identifying his messiahship and his deity in the fulfillment of the law. Okay? So it's a high regard, even to the smallest detail, because what he wants to do is he wants to put the standard back on them. So they say, we are good law keepers. He says, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, if you would break even the smallest one, you would be the least in the kingdom. So he puts the challenge on them. Well, how good are you at keeping the law? How good is your righteousness? How well are you doing? Now, the second question on your page, then why why does he say he's not come to destroy? Why would they think he was destroying the law? Why would they think he's destroying the law? Because he obviously answers the question. He says, hey, I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Do you have your hand raised, Deborah? Taking the, yeah, so there are, so there are, so what's happened is, Jesus is, has, did Jesus ever break the law of God? But what laws did he break all the time? Yeah, the additional laws. So the Pharisees have all these extras that they put on. And Jesus would later say, hey, you teach for commandments the traditions of men. You spend time telling people this is God's commandment, but it's just your tradition. And so Jesus would break the Pharisees' laws all the time. So, but what happened is they were equating their law with God's law. So yeah, so as he starts to do he says, listen, you, you misunderstand. I am not come to, I'm not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it, even to the, the, the tiniest, tiny detail. Now read verse 20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, whose laws he broke all the time. If your righteousness is not greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he doesn't say you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. He says what? You're not getting in. So what he does is he ups the ante and he gives a higher standard of righteousness. To be good enough for the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. Now, let me ask you this question. What, what is a righteousness greater than the Pharisees? Okay, a humility would be involved. Well, he actually explains it in the following verses. He actually explained, yes? He's saying that the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, are not going to end up in heaven? Yes. Right. He just, like, he just like drops a bomb on them right now. So that's, that's part of what he's saying. He says, he says, these are the people that think they're going to be first in the kingdom of heaven, but they're not even going to make it. Never mind. Be. First he says that the law is important. 
and if you, if you minish the law, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. But to even get in, your righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees. It's going to be even better than theirs. Exactly. That's what we talked about that on Sunday morning. We, what is our view of the Pharisees? Well, we have an unfavorable view of the Pharisees. But in this conversation in these days, they thought the Pharisees were the ultimate law keepers. But then he gives this explanation, which is, he gives this explanation in verses 21 and following, where he says, well, you heard, you've heard, thou shalt not kill. But it's not enough to not kill. If you're going to have kingdom righteousness, what else do you have to do away with? You can't just deal with the act of murder. You have to deal with what? The thought. And you've heard, don't commit adultery. But it's not enough to just not commit adultery. You also have to deal with the lust in your heart. Kingdom righteousness is not... Is not it's, it's not that it doesn't involve outside righteousness. It does, of course. But kingdom righteousness goes much deeper than the outside, the externals. The Pharisees had perfected the external keeping of the law. They perfected it. They were good at it. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, Paul would say, touch, he said, I was a Pharisee. And... Uh, I don't have this verse up there, so um, I was a Pharisee, but I was zealous, and then he says, as touching the law, Paul said, I was, does anybody know what he says? Blameless. Now, he didn't mean that he was perfect, but he meant as far as if he did sin, what would he have done? He would have made the exact sacrifice you were supposed to make. Paul, was, he was a Pharisee, a great Pharisee, and he would have said, I was blameless, because that's how the Pharisees lived. So they dealt with the external, but they never dealt with the internal of the heart. Why? Well, there's a few reasons, but the law is actually incapable. The law is incapable of correcting the problem of the heart. It just can't do it. What do you mean? It's just common sense. It's common sense. This is not like a deep theological thing. Just think of regular laws in the world today. I can make a law, just go with the example. I can say it is against the law to murder somebody. And, and can that deal with a murder problem? Well, yeah, it can. I mean, people aren't killing each other left and right, right? Like, there's not... Like, there are some places where there's a lot of murders, but in our society, as the most part, as for the most part, most of you don't go out tonight thinking, I wonder if I'll get murdered tonight, all right? You don't, you don't really think about that. Not where we live, anyhow. It's not like, oh, I wonder if I'll get murdered. Why? Because it's against the law, and the law is severe. So is the law effective in eliminating murder to a degree, to a pretty effective degree? Of course it is. It works well. But how could you pass a law against hatred? It's like, it's impossible. You don't know what's going on in a person's heart. 
You can't, you, the police couldn't come, you know, the thought police or whatever, they can't come around and know exactly what you feel or what you think. You cannot legislate the passions of people's hearts. It's an impossibility. That's the problem with the law. It can't do it. It can't cleanse the heart. Whether it's a public law, whether it's the Jewish law, or whether it's some religious law today, no outward performance is capable of cleansing the, the internal soul. It's the problem with the law. So, let's look at some things that Paul did say about the law, though. Now, this scripture I do have for you, and it's on your handout. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. This is Paul speaking now, as we think about the law. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this. That the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, don't over-spiritualize it. Just think of it really straightforwardly. What is he saying here? What does the law do? It keeps bad people from doing what? There you go. The law keeps bad people from doing bad things. It's It's not for righteous people. It's for... The lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, manslayers, whoremongers, for those that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjurers persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law fixes external problems. Paul says it's good. That's one of the functions of the law. Go over now. I couldn't fit this on the handout, so take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 3. Look at Galatians and chapter 3. It's more speaking on the law. Galatians 3.18. I can't comment on everything in these passages, so there might be some things that are a question to you, and you'll have to table it. So just notice the, the idea of the law in here. Galatians 3.18. Now, this is written to a group of Christians who got too caught up in the law. They thought, well, I'll become a Christian. But then somebody else was like, oh, no, but now you've got to go back and keep the law. And Paul is like, no, the law had a purpose. Look what he says. For if the inheritance be of the law, it's no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So verse 19, basically he says, well, what is the purpose of the law then? Wherefore then serveth the law? What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of what? That's bad people doing bad things. The law was added because of bad people doing bad things. Until the seed should come. Now, who's the seed? You'd have to study the Bible, but... It's Christ. Yeah, you might not know that. That's a whole study in its own, but just take, you'll have to take my word for it tonight until you do your own study. But the seed is Jesus. So the law served a purpose to restrain evil until Messiah comes, to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So in 21, is the law then against the promises of God? No, God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, 
Verily, righteousness should have been by what? Park on this verse for a second. If there was any law, because remember, he is speaking both about Judaic law and law as a principle. Law as a principle. If there was any law, if there was any code that could give people life, which one would it be? Be the Mosaic law. Why? Because the Mosaic law is the greatest law that has ever been written. That's why many of our founding buildings have Moses and the Ten Commandments up there. In, in Congress, there's Moses and the Ten Commandments. Our founders realized in much of uh, English and American law is based, Western law really, is based on biblical law. Because the Old Testament law is the standard of justice. There's never been a better law. But it doesn't work to make people righteous. It just keeps bad people from doing bad things. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that what? That believe. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our... What's the word? Now, you probably think you know what a schoolmaster is, but the Greek concept was a little bit different. A schoolmaster was the one that, that brought you to the teacher, so to speak. They were assigned your education, my understanding of it at least. I'm not an expert in ancient customs, but so I've been told that the schoolmaster was not so much the teacher, but was the servant who was there to make sure that he's learning his lessons. Get him there. So it's not that the law itself was, it's not that the law itself was the teacher, but it was the one who brought us to the teacher, who was who? Christ. That we might be justified or declared righteous. It would be just as right to translate that, that we might be declared righteous by what? By faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under what? A schoolmaster. So based on these passages, in your words, how would you say, how, does the law, how did the law of God fulfill its purpose? What did it do? How did the law work? Exactly. It points us to the need of Christ. The law reveals our problem. Right? Paul would say... In Romans, I wouldn't have known that I was a covetous person, except the law said what? Thou shalt not, shalt not covet. I would have just thought, I'm okay, I am who I am, right? We are very confident in ourselves. It's not that covetous wasn't wrong until the law was there. It's just Paul was like, I didn't, I didn't know what was wrong with me until I saw the law. Oh, don't do that. The law was made for sinners to show sinners to, to, for a couple of reasons. One, to restrain sin. Right? If there was no law, people would, we would live in a very dangerous world. And when there is no law, the world gets dangerous. When there's no law and order. So it has a practical function. It's a good gift of God to help human beings flourish. But then secondly, and more importantly I should say, it reveals our need of Christ by whom we receive true righteousness. True righteousness can only come through Christ. 
That's how it fulfills its purpose. So look on the, the last section on your handout, what the law cannot do. We already spoke about this a little bit. So based on back in Matthew, we don't, you don't need to read it again because we've got the concept. These verses where it says, you heard, Jesus said, you've heard, thou shalt not kill, but if you um, think hateful or say hateful words, you're in danger of judgment, not to commit adultery, but if you feel lust in your, in your heart for someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what the law cannot do is clean our hearts. It cannot put righteousness inside of us. It cannot accomplish it. So what's the answer? Well, I think you know. You know where, obviously where this is heading. But the answer, the answer is what, there's two words that if you like to study theology, it's referred to as alien righteousness or imputed righteousness. Alien righteousness, it means it's a righteousness that doesn't belong to us and it doesn't come from humankind. It's a righteousness that belongs to God. And it's a righteousness that is imputed to us. It's counted to us. It's transactional. Because I believe in Christ, I am given the righteousness of Christ. Now, basically what I've just done is I've given you the biblical and theological underpinnings for statements like this. Christianity, uh, salvation is not something you earn. It's a free gift. Right? We make statements like that. Christianity is not something you earn. It's a free gift. Those are helpful little sayings, right? They're helpful little sayings. But if you are trying to share the gospel with somebody who's, they recoil at that sometimes. And they say, well, what do you mean it's a free gift? I want to earn it. I can earn it. Well, you can earn it. Well, yes, I think I can earn it. Well, you can earn it. You know, and then you go to a verse and one verse. What we need to be is what we Christians need to do is we need to understand these passages. We need to be able to have a little bit deeper conversation as to, well, why can't we earn it? Why is salvation a free gift? It's because all the things we can do to clean ourselves up on the outside, we are incapable of making ourselves righteous. It just won't work. And so what happens is, Religious people read the Sermon on the Mount, and they totally miss that. In fact, they get the opposite message that they're supposed to get from the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is saying to them, you know, uh, don't have hatred in your heart, and uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, and um, when you do your alms, do them in secret. And they read that, and they think like, oh yeah. I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. In other words, I will live the code of the Sermon on the Mount. And by doing so, I will be righteous. Now, should we live the code of the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely. But we should also feel the weight of the code of the Sermon on the Mount. We should feel the inadequacy of ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount and realize that the only way we can live those king, that kingdom righteousness is if it's placed inside of us by Jesus. You put, the whole, you put all the scripture together to understand that. It's very much like the rich young ruler. He's the perfect example of that. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Master, 
What good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? He says, well, and he gives them a, a few of the commandments, right? Obey this, obey that, obey this. And the man says what? Oh, yeah, I did all that. I did all that. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing left for you to do then. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And he went away sorrowful because he had great riches. So did Jesus just give us the formula for salvation? Keep those four commandments and sell all your possessions and you'll be saved. Is that what was happening in that passage? Well, that's such a shallow reading of the passage. It's so shallow. It's clearly not the point here. The point is, who would look at Jesus and say, oh yeah, I've done all that. I've kept the whole law. Do you think that the riches was the only thing Jesus could have pointed out in that guy's life? No, he could have asked him, well, have you ever lusted in your heart? He could have gone to anything. He just went straight to the issue that would be the most convicting to the young man. This, when I was young, I had a hard time understanding the Gospels because I, want, I always wanted Jesus just to get to the point, give us the formula, give us the ABCs, and then boom, we've got it. That is, that is what the apostles do later on. In the Gospels, you see the gradual unveiling of the plan of Christ. And you have to read them that way. You have to understand them that way. That you have a, a historical layering of the revealing of what Jesus said, who he was, to now understand what the apostles are teaching in the rest of the New Testament. They interpret one another. And they harmonize beautifully. In fact, so beautifully that how we concluded the, sun, the sermon on Sunday was Paul, the Pharisee, saying, remember the verse, I, I just, I, these two verses always come together for me whenever I look at these passages. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of who? The scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, I was a chief Pharisee. Hebrew of the here, I was a, touching the law perfect. But all those things that were gain, I counted loss. And then he says this. Being found in him, not having my own, does anybody know what he said? Not having my own righteousness. He got rid of his Pharisee righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ by faith. And he received the righteousness of Christ. It's like the perfect comparison. Because when Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you bet young teenage Paul heard about that. You bet all the Pharisees heard about that. So she's saying that we're not righteous enough? And all those years later for Paul to say, to be found in him, not having my own righteousness. And then I'll finish with, look at Romans 8. This kind of summarizes how, what the law can't do and what Jesus does. Romans 8, 1 through 12 there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, this, this is kind of cool, because, all right, in verse 2, the law of the Spirit, the law of sin, and then verse 3 is, the law of Moses. So there's a law of the Spirit. In other words, there's a controlling principle. 
And that's the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And there's a law of sin. And then there's the Mosaic law. So the law of sin controls people. And the law of Moses restrains them from their great evil. But the law of faith, the law of Christ, the law of spirit sets, sets us free. For what, verse, for what the law of Moses could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin where? In the flesh. What statement? Condemned sin in the flesh. What, what phrase does that mirror from Matthew chapter 5? That he would do what to the law? Fulfill it. And when he fulfilled it, guess what he did to it? He, when he fulfilled the law, what did he do to sin? He condemned it. He, he robbed sin of its power by being the perfect one to keep the law. Until then, no one had kept the law. Sin reigned. And Jesus said, watch this. And he fulfilled the law, and he condemned sin in a human body. Why? Verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be what? There's that word again, fulfilled. But fulfilled in Christ? Fulfilled in who? In us. He took his perfect fulfillment of the law, and he accounted it to whom? To us. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Why? Because we are doing it? No, it's because we don't walk after the flesh. We don't expect our human behavior to accomplish this. We're Christians, so we walk after who? After the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed what can be. It's impossible for the carnal mind. A lot of people, they think that Romans chapter 8 is talking about our behavior. It's not talking about our behavior. It's talking about are we, are we spirit people or are we flesh people? Christians are spirit people. When you were a flesh person, you were subject to the law. Um... You, you were slave to sin, so you couldn't obey the law. It's impossible. So then they, verse 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. By the way, that's a good verse for people that tell you that you get the Spirit later on. Right? You get saved, but then later on you get the Spirit. You don't. It's, you get the Spirit with salvation. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ. They go together. It's a package deal, as they say. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, this is where it gets to our behavior. 
Up until now, it's been all about our identity in Christ and in the Spirit. Now, therefore, because you now are in the Spirit, you don't owe the flesh anything. We are, de- we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. And he talks about this, and, and we're a bit out of time. It's our last verse. We belong to the Spirit. So now we walk after the Spirit, and we live out that kingdom righteousness that has been placed in us. So that puts together the teachings of Jesus on righteousness with Paul's New Testament teachings, and you just see how they beautifully dovetail together. There are some modern people that are, that are teaching false doctrines, and they, what they try to do is they try to pit the teachings of Jesus against the teachings of Paul. You'll see people doing that if you, if you are on the interwebs. But the fact is, the, the Sermon on the Mount harmonizes so beautifully with the teachings of the Apostle Paul. It must be because the same author wrote the Gospel and the Apostles' writings. It's the Holy Spirit. All right, that's our discussion. Any questions, comments, thoughts as we wrap it up? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we've had this time. I thank you, Lord, that it is not up to us to make ourselves righteous, but by faith we can receive the righteousness of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to... Lord, many of us, we have friends or family that we try to explain this to, that we care about, that are trying to work out their own salvation. But I pray that you'd help them to see that that is futile, that they need you. Thank you for the wonderful message of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.